another episode of Nobody's a Nobody podcast with me, Mike McVeigh. This is the podcast where I interview people I find absolutely fascinating, and I believe you will too if you give them a chance. This week's guest is the energy guy, Matt Jensen, and our musical guest, uh, Jeremy's Hot Dog Song of the Week, is Santiago Ramones with his song, Mirage. Now, some of you are going like, hey, Mike, is this really still going on? I mean, it's been a month since you released an episode, and yes, it is. Work has beaten me down and has been crazy. Um, I haven't had a lot of outlets, but what I have um, has been uh, improv, Oklahoma City improv. That has been so much fun. And um, in fact, I have a show coming up Sunday, the 14th of November at 5 p.m. So if you're in Oklahoma City, feel free to come check us out. OKC Improv is a nonprofit event, um, uh, uh, charity uh, uh, organization. So please um, come and support. Get some different um, lessons and improve your ability to have fun. Uh, remember how to play with people. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the biz- the business of the week is going to be uh, up down bar. Um, several of the improvers go to the bar after the nine thirty shows on Fridays and Saturdays. I'm not a drinker, so I don't go as often. But I do have to say, when I went this past uh, Saturday, and the staff is completely professional, they treat you well, even if you're just ordering a coke or a water, um, while everybody else is ordering their their alcohol. So. Um, not that I encourage it or discourage it, but that is it is a great place, and that's one reason why we support them so vehemently. Um, we do always want to shout out to oneokc.org, oneokc.org. They help fight illiteracy in Oklahoma. Um, so we really have two nonprofits and a uh, <laughs> a bar to support. So uh, appreciate you guys um, willing to listen in. We have Matt Jensen. He is my friend. He has been a balance for me really since the pandemic started. And we've grown so close. This is our 20th attempt at an interview, but it came through. I think it came out well. It's a little bit longer than our normal interviews, but it is is just really packed full of great information. Um, they're probably one of our last interviews that's really long, but um, don't, don't sweat it. You can... Um, uh, listen to it in chunks um, and hopefully soon we'll get our next episode out and we'll be on a more uh, regular schedule I really do miss doing this it's been a lot of fun and I thank you all for your support of listening and supporting me and uh, the nobody's a nobody podcast so here we have it Matt Jensen the energy guy we have Matt Jensen uh, my friend my walking and disc golf buddy um, Matt is pretty proficient in multiple different areas and we'll be talking about some of those he's a really smart guy so I apologize to all the listeners out there when I don't always keep my side of it but I will try to make it interesting enough and he's usually relatable enough that anything that is usually more difficult to understand he can break it down and if he can't then I guess you're just going to have to go read some more books and get some more classes to learn so welcome Matt thanks for having me Mike um you have such a varied field of interest and specialties and whatnot. And I think uh, there's just so much going on in the world that do, does directly apply to you, um, which also probably applies to the rest of us. And I know we, we're probably going to talk about energy at some point. We're going to talk about um, maybe a little bit of foreign relations and stuff. But one thing that it seems kind of silly. And we, we had this a little bit as a pre-conversation earlier, the electric cars. Now, all of my life, I've been told like, um, the best thing you can do is go electric or you can do, you know, stop using gasoline. Um, it's safer for the environment. And we had a talk a few months ago about that electric cars might not be 
everything that they're promised to be. And do you remember kind of that conversation? Well, I, uh, not necessarily, but I'll just kind of get an overview of it. Okay, go I, for it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think like oftentimes we kind of have this um, need or want as people to make decisions that make us feel like we're benefiting um, the world and stuff like that. And this isn't to rag on electric cars or anything, but uh, you know, with electric cars, uh, one of the things that you, you know, the the framework around it is always discussed as it's zero emission, but there's very little talk about the added minerals that go into them or the added uh, added mining that needs to be undertook, uh, how the batteries are um, built what they're built of and how they're um, basically processed and reused if that's possible after, after their, their useful life is up. So electric cars typically take about nine times the amount of um, critical minerals as uh, gas powered cars. On the other hand, they're also, they have less parts in them. So from a maintenance and overhaul perspective, you should expect that your maintenance and overhaul costs would go down. So with everything, there's kind of like positives and negative neg negatives to it. Um, it's just kind of a, you know, I, I think we really live in a world these days where people are, um, have the tendency, whether that's their own thought or someone else kind of projecting on them that uh, this decision will save the world without kind of the realization that you're still consuming things and there's a cost to that. A lot of the consumption, a lot of the mining of these, the uh, highly intensive mining of uh, these minerals occurs in really poor countries. So it's kind of like not in your backyard, so to speak. Um, so people don't really see the effects of it. They do see the fact effect that there's little exhaust, but it's just kind of a, there's been a huge push to demonize oil and gas without respecting the other side that they've basically helped the world develop in such a, a miraculous way um, through, uh, you know, having plastics for medical technologies. Um, it's, 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 been, it's been one of the biggest factors in development of the world. And also, you know, basically the, um, the geopolitical strength of the United States as a democracy. It's, uh, oil is the largest physical market in the world. So it's it's a big deal, and it, it will continue to be a big deal for a long time because it's not the technology isn't there yet to replace it essentially. And right, yeah. So it's so it's kind of a weird thing. Is uh, I feel like there's two sides that are, um, and the you know, it's kind of a bad like lobbyists are usually looked as bad, but I I don't think that oil and gas lobbyists have really done a great job of talking about and informing the public of where they see it um, and what sort of benefits kind of occur uh, for society through it. So, you know, 
if you want to talk more about this um, further, there's some interesting things that we could talk about uh, that I see that are kind of popping up with, you know, the quest to basically mine all these minerals and get all these minerals to kind of uh, create the new feature, so to speak, mm -hmm. that I that worry me. But yeah, one of the things I think that I really appreciate about you maybe more than most of my friends and not to knock them so much, but we talk a lot on our walks and there's a balance or a form of um, centering balance that you provide. Even if you're not necessarily taking what you personally believe where I'm like, Hey, this is what I'm being told. Or um, these are some things that I'm starting to kind of come to these opinions. And you're like, well, um, have you considered this? And I, I know right now in you know 2021, the oil and gas industry is big, bad. Um, I've definitely shared that with you multiple times and you're huh. like, well, um, yes, but, <laughs> um, and I think that's one of the things that I really like when I talk about, talk with you about different things is very few things are completely what we see on the surface. Um, we, we look at things in very binary terms and we look at them in, um, two dimensional spaces and stuff, but there's a lot more that goes into it. Um, I remember reading an article about Tesla oh, five or six years ago, and it was saying, yeah, kind of like what you were saying about the, the car itself, it's great, but the factory that made the car um, uses up like five times the amount of um, pollution of what it would make for a regular car that five of those cars wouldn't even use up as much pollution as it was made for one Tesla or something like that. And I, I know that's ambiguous, but there's always kind of more sides to some of the stuff, even the things that we're convinced that we know <laughs> yeah. why they're bad. And you work in the world of energy. So I'm sure that that makes it even more conflicting because you're, you're pretty astute on trying to help the world be better. I mean, um, I haven't seen you just litter, you know, pour out trash on the curb uh -huh. or anything. Just go like, Definitely take that green that. people. Um, and you're very, and I, I would say that you're pretty attuned to the needs of the world and like, um, that you feel connect. I don't want to speak for you in one sense, but there's like a connection. You appreciate the earth and you appreciate the minerals in the world. Um, not just because of what they can do for profit, but you just appreciate nature. You appreciate that kind of stuff as well. And that's not something we always think about when we think of people in the oil gas or just power industry as a whole. Yeah. Well, I, I do consider myself an environmentalist, but, um, it's, Part of the reason that I do work in energy, and I, I don't just work with oil and gas companies. So, but I, I do work with all these other and all these other uh, generation um, uh, verticals too. But it's just I, you know, it's almost taken on a religion, so to speak. Um, you know, as religion has faded, uh, a lot of people have picked up. I think you know, this, uh, I don't know what it'd say, like two sides environmentalism as kind of a replacement. Um, it's, it's just a weird, weird thing. So it shared like a story when, when I was at, when I was a young kid, I, I grew up in, um, Seattle, Washington and, uh, close to where I lived, there was a, the UW horticulture center. So, uh, some, I think it was the Earth Liberation Front. They were doing, basically creating hybrid plants there 
to try to increase yields, you know, um, they're really focused on uh, ways to reduce global hunger, hunger through increasing productivity and reduce or uh, increasing pest resistance. But the ELF blew up this horticulture center. And as a young kid, I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty intense that you would be so passionate about something without seeing potentially all the benefits it could provide to um, that you would do something like that. Um, and it's not, energy is such a complicated thing, you know, and depending where you are, there's, uh, there's a lot of different factors to be considered, but, you know, I just kind of see what I see and that's not to demonize other people on what they believe too, because, you know, that's not how I want to do it. Um, but, uh, it's just that it's a complicated issue and the part of the reason I work and work with oil and gas companies is because I'm environmentalist and I want them to, um, get the most bang for their buck and yield out of these wells in the most efficient manner. Um, I also work with, uh, water management and treatment companies, um, that, that are pretty cool. And uh, some uh, things like a, I'm helping an inventor commercialize some really cool uh, technology for, you know, providing uh, critical minerals for um, renewables in a much more environmentally effective manner and something that I think would be dramatically lower cost too. So like I'm, I've got my fingers, so to speak, everywhere. Um, and it, it's, it's just, I think it would be, you, we really want to sometimes I think demonize other people without, uh, looking at the benefits that things have provided. And, you know, it's, there's hypocrisy everywhere in this world, but it doesn't really necessarily, um, it, it's just kind of a weird time yeah. generally. Yeah. It's, and I, I'm I'm probably one of the ones that is quick to demonize something and then apologize profusely for the rest of my life, uh, <laughs> but it, we always have to remember that where we how we got here wherever here is in this specific matter, there were things that were done before, and it's to just completely like oh this isn't right and just to wipe away all the things that were we're perceiving as wrong now, also wipes away a lot of the problems that got us to the solutions that bring us here. So. Yeah, it might not be the most, might not be the best situation overall, but it's not like ever. I don't, I mean, maybe there are a few people that are purely psychopathic or sociopathic and trying to make every single, every single thing wrong. But the decisions that were made 500 years ago still affect us today. And then the decisions that were made on top of those decisions in multiple areas, not just energy, but you know, um, it, it brings us to some of this refinement and to some of this, um, ability to where we would say we're in a better off but you know 500 years from now they're gonna be like oh my goodness can you believe those people did that stuff back then yeah. they're so stupid and <laughs> some of the things that we were we're so most adamant about now are going to be the things that were like wow that was just really dumb for us <laughs> well, be, but, before care, before kerosene we almost you know uh, ex killed the world's whales because they used to 
uh, kill the whale or whales for whale oil, and then they would extract uh, from their brains this um, um, part of that, the fat out of there to make candles and stuff. So it's it's kind of like it's it's just complicated. So as as we've seen that, um, like for the U.S., for instance, as as we've kind of uh, pulled pulled the proper capital that needs to be out of the U.S. oil and gas market to support that market from providing uh, the world's cleanest oil and gas production. Um, you've seen that uh, prices rise for natural gas. So now there's a lot of generation. Um, it's the first time, I think, since 2014 uh, that coal use has risen and it's dramatically rising. That's something that that's that's an industry that I don't really want to see come back basically just because of the environmental effects of it so why why is coal usage um moving back up after the seven year period uh capital's been so oil and gas has been demonized so much that the investment capital no longer wants to invest in it and it's it's kind of it's kind of a weird thing because there's uh, this esg it's environmental, social, and governance stuff. Um, that's been basically the hottest uh, fundraising tool the past couple of years. So it's collected trillions of dollars of money from it, but it's also basically pulled out all the accessible capital. It's very hard to raise capital for these companies right now. And you're, you're talking about like large commercial operations heavy industry operations that basically need this capital to produce. Um, so, you know, for the U.S., we, we don't have a state-owned uh, enterprise. It's like a free market, essentially, for oil and gas. Um, it's caused us to dramatically reduce the amount of oil and gas that we produce. We're no longer energy independent, essentially. And um, through that process, it's raised the price of gas from the mid twos to over $5 at MCF. And it's made it uneconomical for some of these uh, generation units in the United States to produce with natural gas anymore. So they're using coal instead. So now that we're mentioning gas prices, uh, this is something that it really doesn't seem, and I'm not trying to get it political in one sense, but I'm kind of curious um, whoever is president of the United States, how much like percentage wise in your personal opinion, does that actually affect our gas prices? Uh, well, I would say that gas prices probably inversely more affect whether or not presidents get reelected. <laughs> so if you look like, I don't have the stat on there, but if you look at, um, it's pretty, if you look back to the forties and fifties, most presidents that have had a spike in energy prices aren't reelected, if if not all of them, you know. So energy is it's a fundamental thing for people, right? And when you see your fundamental costs double overnight, you just don't really um, know what to think about it. So, has that, sorry, has that been more like when you're saying the spike? Not necessarily when the president gets elected, but near the end of their term, or 
um, is it, or just anywhere in their term whatsoever? Well, it would be like if you started a term with cheap energy prices and then you left with high energy prices, you're probably, okay. gotcha. it's, it's um, you know, I'd have to get back to you on this, but it's one of the highest correlations to not being reelected that there is. Gotcha. So, but um, I, you know, the first, on the first day in office, uh, Keystone Pipeline was canceled and granted tar sands aren't, tar sands uh, oil isn't really environmentally friendly at all, but um, it, that, that was a ideological decision more than anything. And um, our refineries in the US are built to process heavy oil. Um, there's heavy oil and then there's the light oil that we produce, which is far more environmentally friendly and easier to process. So with our existing um, processing facilities in the United States, those were really built around uh, processing Saudi Arabian crude and uh, crude from Venezuela and other heavy oil countries. So the tar sands, the Keystone Pipeline would have basically sent tar sands will to the US to be processed. And um, so that's, that's one thing. There's been other, other decisions that over time would, um, would cause issues that aren't really causing issues right now. But it's, uh, it's, there's been a lot of kind of, I would say the ESG stuff has been more of a factor because it's pulled out um, investment funds from the market. And, you know, you kind of get in a weird, weird place where, um, you know, before this year, the big, biggest public enemies for one party were Russians um, and, the, and Saudi Arabia. Um, they were at, some people were talking about military action over things that were there, but uh, not to go get into the politics stuff, but, you know, flash forward two years later and they're begging those countries to increase production of, you know, substantially worse for the environment, um, oil and gas. And it's just kind of a weird, this weird world where you, you can kind of see upfront how inauthentic politicians are, you know, um, and the kind of intangible effects for that for Europe too is uh, the U.S. has not been meeting their energy uh, shipment requirements to Europe. So Russia has basically come come in and increased their um, their deliveries of natural gas by I think fifteen to twenty five percent to Europe. But Europe's in a full-on energy crisis right now. And I think a lot of people are praying for a warm winter there. But it's uh, back in, I think, 2014, um, it was the Crimea stuff. And there was a lot of tensions around that. But Ukraine owed, um, owed Gazprom, who is the biggest energy entity for Russia, like $9 billion or something like that and unpaid energy bills for the pipeline. So Russia just cut off the pipeline flows 
until they paid. The U.S. would uh, refuse to allow the money that we were giving um, in the proxy war to be used for that. And tons of people died. So um, basically froze to death. So there's, there's a lot of it, more important than money. Uh, energy is kind of like the fundamental thing that makes this world go around. And yeah, and it's just kind of, it's a, it's a complicated time. So, so there's a couple other forms of energy that again, I've grown up hearing about, or they've moved towards for whatever reason. Um, and it, I'm not, and I'm going to, I'm going to ask you straight out, are these legitimate energy sources? Or are they just more kind of like fads? But um, the first one is uh, solar energy, and the second one is wind energy. Are those things really even worth uh, the re regular person to pursue or to support? Or is it just one of those things that just kind of sounds good on paper, but in practice, it's ineffective? Well, if I, if I had like a big farm, I would basically like, to, like it to be off-grid, you know? So I would implement um, wind and solar. And if I had... Uh, if I had natural gas too, like I, I have a friend's um, friend's uncle that runs a large farm out in Colorado and they just have uh, natural gas wells that they drill on the property that kind of supply all their energy needs to run it. So um, it's, you know, it's a complicated discussion and really when you're talking about it, it's, it's pretty murky. Um, like solar has come down in cost dramatically um, over time and uh, same with wind energy, but it's just, you know, it, energy is a complicated thing because our consumption of it is growing so drastically with uh, digital um, or digital use, like in energy intensive stuff like uh, Bitcoin mining and growing pot, for instance. So there's like, uh, there's a lot of stuff that are super energy intensive that have been added to the grid. And, you know, I, I always think that um, the more, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for people to just build their own generation facilities. It costs right. a lot of money, but, you know, incentives and uh, subsidies help for stuff like that. Um, there's well, it's it's not always profitable to build them without the subsidies and you're talking about like if you had acreage and stuff or a farm but what about like a regular residential house i mean you probably can't even get permits to build that kind of stuff can you well not the not wind turbines but <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah but but you can uh you know you can do um solar panels on your roof and stuff and there's in this uh, reconciliation bill that they're talking about. I think that, I think it was the solar, uh, residential solar, um, basically subsidies for that um, ran out this year or running out. So part of that is to basically extend those or increase them. Um, but you have, it's, it's a complicated thing, right? So if you're managing a grid, um, so solar energy has this thing called like net metering. And that's basically where if you, you, if your house is producing excess energy, you can sell it back to the, sell it back to the grid to kind of reduce your costs. And that's uh, part of that component. Um, California's um, 
Im implemented a lot of that, the most in the nation for that. Uh, overall, Texas has added the most renewables over the last decade than any other state. And um, surprisingly, I did I did a I was curious recently with all this talk of this reconciliation bill. Um, I'd never taken it from a uh, political approach, but I did some analytics around uh, net generation, who's added the most in terms of renewables um, to their grid over the last five years and decade. And then uh, who's going forward is adding basically the most renewables to their grid. Um, it surprised me a lot that uh, Repu Republican states have added about twice as much of renewables to their grid than democratic states. So, you know, it's, I was very surprised because it's one side has very strong rhetor rhetoric and the other one doesn't really talk about it much. Right. But um, yeah. So to go back to the net metering things, there's sometimes bad situations where like a couple of years ago, uh, California was producing too much energy. So they were paying Arizona to take their energy uh, because they were worried about their grid failing um, otherwise. And it's with anything that you build at a massive scale, it makes it hard to manage. And, you know, I, I think it would be probably smarter to have a bunch of mini grids um, because it's just uh, less complex and you can kind of approach them one by one. But so I, you know, I think the original question was about oh, wind and solar. I think it depends on the person, whether or not that makes sense for them. Um, I think, I think they're cool. So, and I, I, I do think that there's a lot of uh, promise for offshore wind too. And also offshore uh, hydrogen generation too. I won't lie, that I actually kind of want to get deeper into that, but for the sake of everybody else, that probably doesn't care nearly as much. Maybe we'll save that for another time. Well, um, ask it. Okay, so um, offshore wind energy, like uh, how does it? I guess I, I'm not an electrician, and that's where, I, of course, my mind goes first. I can understand how fuel, you know, oil and gas, I can understand how that can be transported from, you know, Saudi Arabia to the United States. Um, I don't really understand how you can uh, transport energy, wind energy from one place to another. Um, I, I guess I'm starting to think of, you know, like Final Fantasy or World of Warcraft, where it's like going through the air, like, Ooh. <laughs> well, it's, it's just like a line. So it's kind of like an electrical line like you have that go into your house so okay so it's like it's basically in the same way anything else gets converted to electricity once it gets converted to electricity it just it goes that way so it's not like yeah. like fuel containers or something for oil um it's just kind of like what we already use for everything else right now yeah so you just run an insulated um okay line along the uh bottom of the ocean that basically kind of you know, keep it simple, plugs into your grid onshore and you use that. So it's kind of, uh, yeah, it's pretty simple. Now, you and I live in a certain part of Oklahoma where hell storms and potential tornadoes happen, even on off seasons that are not supposed to happen. <laughs> yeah. um, solar energy, like if I was 
would it even be smart to try to put something like that in an area that we live in because of all the hell that seems to come down throughout the year would that not just like completely damage the solar panels or are they, are they stronger than i thought they were i i don't know on that so when we got our recent hail storm um my neighbor has uh solar panels on side of their house and it looked like they weren't damaged so um that didn't take a direct shot on it but still um and we also have a solar farm that's um nearby that didn't look like it was obliterated so i don't really know um oklahoma itself is one of the biggest producers in the united states of wind wind energy so that makes a lot more sense here than you know solar comparatively right but, but i yeah i don't really know how to answer that like solar panels include a lot of glass and stuff like that but i right. I, I just don't know if um maybe it depends on what you get and i know this isn't necessarily in your wheelhouse when we talk about energy but again oklahoma over the past year in fact right around this time last year a good chunk of oklahoma the power went out um <laughs> for some people it was a couple hours other people it was uh close to a month um where people were like there was just no electricity and stuff what causes that kind of thing or is that just something that's not in your your uh un, your knowledge base were you talking about the winter freeze yeah yeah that happened last october and yeah punish people um so that's kind of one of the weird things is I, with having this massive grid, it's too expensive to put the lines underground most places. So you have above, uh, you know, above surface lines and those have a tendency to fall. And also ironically, you know, the biggest, the, those giant fires in California over the past couple of years have been caused by power lines. So it's kind of, it's, it's a weird, you know, this is one of those components too, where you're like, does it really make sense to add a bunch of things, um, a capacity on things that aren't really working? So, um, but uh, <clears throat> yeah, so that that takes a long, a lot of time to uh, to basically reset up those power lines, get them reconnected. Um, you know, I I. Uh, I've seen locally where it seems like we're putting more steel, um, riveted steel uh, power lines in. And I would assume that those can handle the winds a lot better than just wood. But, you know, you're also putting this giant steel structure up, which is dramatically more expensive and has all kind of the, um, the I guess, emissions issues with that too creating those so yeah and it almost seems like it caused more light issues of lightning or something yeah um, i didn't i didn't even think about that yeah i mean if only we didn't have storms um, <laughs> yeah so um looking forward towards the future what are what's energy going to look like or what what are some things that um not necessarily like i know you're in the energy field but for us not energy people who are just enjoying all of our uh, lives of luxury <laughs> using up energy what are some of the things that might be coming down the line that will affect us or will change how we do things 
at least with the current administration, their goal is to have about 50% uh, solar uh, generation for the United States by I think 2050. Um, that's probably not feasible. Um, there's a lot of wind capacity being added and you know it's 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 been a weird year um i think it's been kind of a year to realize maybe the limits of renewables having everything so like germany and uk have had uh lower wind speeds um than last year and because of that they're kind of you know struggling with um having the proper capacity to really um have everything, um, have the energy that they need for stuff. And, uh, you know, China's had energy crises. I, I, I just kind of, I kind of see, see in the future that there's gonna be a lot of underinvestment in things that really offer a on-demand sort, of, uh, sort of capability to have energy when you need it. And that might cause some issues. Um, it's, it's just kind of this kind of weird thing where you know we're trying to make consumption seem better than it is but looking out into 2050 2060 2100 um we're going to be using using and utilizing a lot of a lot more energy than we are now um until you know essentially the population starts to decrease and um, I, we're probably going to add another billion people over the next, um, 50 years or something. And each of those people are e either going to consume more or, um, basically have a worse quality of life. So it's going to be, I, I really see this as a flashpoint going forward, um, both on political stability and kind of geopolitical stability too. One of the interesting things with renewables is you're kind of, um, you know, China basically owns or controls 80% of the critical materials to produce all those. And you're, so it's just really, it, it's just, there's so much to this, you know, like I, I, I think a lot of uh, politicians around the, uh, the globe are really worried about um, global growth stalling and what that means to, to the stability of countries and basically like you know changing your whole energy like everything that you built over the last hundred years is and replacing it with someone else's you know a good growth program um, I think although it's not really uh, presented as that, I think that's really probably the number one factor in promoting this stuff now as, as kind of a uh, growth, growth engine. And, you know, some people have said, if we don't do this now, we're all gonna die and stuff like that. And uh, it's, that's not, not true, but um, there is, yeah, it's, it, it's just a, it's kind of like what you said. It's the quality of life is going to be different one way or another. Yeah, it it just kind of depends, right? So there there's so many kind of different things in there, um, but you know you look at 
So China and Rus Russia are handling this very differently than um, kind of the, the Western countries. And they also control the supply chain for all the minerals that we need to basically create it. Um, there is not enough minerals to go around. And I, so it's, it's just kind of a, so like nuclear, for instance, is uh, kind of coming back in style as a topic because um, people are realizing that you need stuff to fill up um, the generation when the wind isn't blowing or it's not daylight out. But there's, there's just a lot of stuff going on. Like uh, UK recently was talking about um, limiting the ability to add uh, charge your EVs um, between peak hours. So I think it was like 4 to 9 p.m. because they're worried about the stability of the grid. And I think if you replace millions of cars in the U.S. with stuff that has to be plugged in, you need a massive amount of centralized energy generation for that. So it's, it's, it's just a really... We're, we're heading into an era where we're adding potentially a lot more complexity to the system. And um, that's not really being discussed in the depth that it should be. And um, we're moving pretty fast. So, yeah, you know, I, I kind of feel like um, China and Russia are going to be in pretty dominant geopolitical positions. Um, further dominant geopolitical positions in the future um, just because you kind of need them to keep this all going. So you, you mentioned nuclear and I guess growing up, I remember hearing about how horrible nuclear was. Of course, Chernobyl happened when I was young and, um, and it's honestly, until you said it, I almost completely forgot about it, even though I still watch the Simpsons regularly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and I know there are still nuclear power plants, um, uh, just here in Southwest United States. Even um, have we have we done a better job of, or not better job? I think we've done a better job. Do you think we're at a point where where the safety of doing nuclear power plants is worth building more? Uh, is that and is that something that China and Russia also regulate, or is that something that we can kind of take care of ourselves on if we were able to do it safely? Well, we do have. So we have vast, vast amount of resources in the United States and given our legal structure and our focus on environmentalism here, I wish that we would uh, utilize those more than in foreign countries, um, you know, typically poor um, countries, because we really do have a, I'd say almost like a neo-colonialist aspect of it where we kind of go in and you know kind of take over all this stuff and don't really don't really properly reflect on where it comes from but uh, we have vast amounts of uranium here that we don't really mine and um, I think most most of our uranium U.S. that we import comes from Kazakhstan but uh, it's it's a uh, it's a lot safer. Um, a lot of the big issues that we've had in the past with Chernobyl and Fukushima were based off of uh, improper design 
and inappropriate containment stuff. And, you know, you can kind of, um, I'm not necessarily like super um, prevalent or super knowledgeable on the effects of that. But I think it's, I think when you talk about nuclear people think nuclear weapons and maybe there's kind of like a mind correlation to that, but you know, you can utilize very little amount of uranium basically to power if you're thinking about like a per capita um, uh, resource allocation for your entire life like nuclear is probably the most efficient on that right and that's uh, that's one thing i've consistently read even i mean even in the 80s after chernobyl they were still saying as far as what the bang for the buck i guess is your um this nuclear is allows for more uh, it was just that i guess the control systems we had in place or the designs as you were saying it allowed for the, the safety aspect um unfortunately you know cost a lot of people in a very you know, i mean I, I think it's only now that like the chernobyl area is starting to be where people can <laughs> go there uh, just over like the past 10 years without um, any of the residual effects and stuff um but there's also husband. there's also still people that have never left and are still True. living there. So. True. Um, uh, but we're going to move a little away from energy, even though that's that is a fun topic, and I can see why you enjoy it so much. Um, I wouldn't have thought it was so much fun before having this conversation today, even though <laughs> that's not fun. Uh, but I think something that we we've been kind of saying this in the background stuff, um, but it's. And it's very prevalent in energy, but I think it's just everything we do. Um, even us not talking about politics while also talking about politics, but not talking about politics is why we as people make the decisions that we do, like what's going on in our mindset and everything. And this is an area that um, I know you put a little, a lot of personal study in. Um, and so yeah, let's just talk about why, why are, why do we do what we do? Why we wake, why do we make decisions that seem to be harmful to us? Um, and not helpful, but at the same time, um, the decision that makes the most sense, we just don't do it. Yeah, I, I, I don't necessarily know where you're, if, if you had an idea on wh what you want to talk about here, but I could talk a little bit about my, um, my background. So um, I, you know, I, I kind of have like two different parallels that I did in my life. I grew up in a, a family business. Um, developed some marinas and a desalinization plant and worked with in finance and stuff like that. But I also, um, for my academic um, stuff over the years, I, I studied around, um, I would say, more behavioral finance and why people make decisions, um, incentives and stuff like that. Um, my grad thesis was on uh, irrational hurting behavior and uh, why people heard in financial markets, um, which I, I think was pretty relevant to the ESG sort of discussion. But that was, uh, yeah, that was basically about kind of more the behavioral motives that allow people to kind of funnel in one specific direction. So, you know, for, if we talk specifically, um, you know. Well, let's, let's talk about the irrational hurting behavior. What, um, maybe just kind of go in a quick brief thing of what hurting behavior is, 
and why we consider irrational or, you know, we'll, we'll start with that. Yeah. Irrational is kind of a loaded, loaded word. That was just, that was just the title of it. But um, I, yeah, I think people like the safeties, safety of groups and, you know, you, you don't want to be kind of like, most people don't want to be the last person sitting alone on the island, kind of holding, holding the bag, so to speak. Um, but, you know, with, so to go back to this ESG stuff, like, I, I think a lot of people want to be in it. It's kind of like a new thing, kind of like Bitcoin too, um, where it's better to be in there first rather than later. And the tendency is to have, um, you know, the mindset that you, it's kind of like that uh, fear missing out mindset that if you're not in it, you're going to be left behind. And I, yeah, I don't really know what to um, say really about that, but I, I feel that's kind of innate to human experience. Like all throughout history, we've uh, had this tendency to kind of push ourselves into groups where maybe there's a semblance of safety, um, you know, and a lot of bad stuff happens with that. A lot of good stuff happens like, you know, bad stuff. Maybe you could use as examples like the Salem witch trials, for instance, um, Nazism, uh, like it's, it's safer to be in a group than be exposed. And I just think it's kind of a natural, um, kind of a natural approach for a lot of people. Right. And I, I guess I, I do find this really interesting because uh, as you know, I like to think I'm philosophical and I try to uh, not just do the surface philosoph philosophy philosophy, um, but also kind of the, the deeper philosophical roots that go into things. And um, whether it's my love of sports, um, entertainment of various genres, um, you know, anything I'm reading about in history really at all, it doesn't really even matter what the subject matter is. As soon as somebody does something that's kind of successful, um, so to use for at least Americans, the Super Bowl, whoever wins the Super Bowl, the way that offense or defense was built, all of a sudden over the next year, all the teams try to replicate that. Yeah. And it seems to be rational because it's like, well, hey, they just won the Super Bowl. So obviously that's the way we're supposed to do it. And so we're going to completely re-identify our team and look for players that were just like that Super Bowl team. In fact, we'll pay millions of dollars to someone that was just a role player on that team to come on our team. So that way we can be the Super Bowl champions. And every year um, I, I read articles upon articles of where they're saying like, hey, this is the new thing we're going to do. And, <laughs> and coaches are getting fired because – they're trying to be somebody else's team. That's not at all in their coaching style. It's not the player's playing style. And it, it, like I said, it seems rational because, Hey, this worked for somebody. So there should obviously be a one size fits all mentality. And, yeah. and I'm using sports, but I've seen this in entertainment music, music definitely follows this loop. Um, whatever genre of music that you're specifically interested in, somebody becomes a big hit um, usually out, it seems to be out of nowhere. And now all of a sudden, everybody in that genre tries to sound more like Toby Keith or Taylor Swift, if it's country, or they try to sound more like NSYNC or, um, uh, Britney Spears. I know that's dating myself, but I don't care. Screw y'all. Um, <laughs> um, 
you know, and we see this in movies, there's some director or some actor that does something kind of really cool. And then all of a sudden we get all these kind of, I would say cheap knockoffs, but they're really expensive knockoffs. Yeah. And they don't work because it's not rational just to do it just because other people are doing it. So I guess when, um, when I saw some of the stuff about possible talking points, and I'm seeing why people would do what we do and the hurting behavior. I'm like, oh yeah, absolutely. This is this is probably the most frustrating thing for me as a student of history and as a student of uh, marketing and advertising and learning. Why are we so stupid so much of the time? <laughs> what is it about us? Um, and maybe you're willing to um, get into that conversation a little bit right now. I don't know. If not, we'll just edit this out. And <laughs> I can I. I could talk a little bit about finance. So okay. we so we talked about the uh, ESG sort of thing. Like I I see in financial fundraising a lot that there's you know in the last couple of years it was AI. So it was like if I want to raise money, I'll just use uh, take whatever I am doing and then um, put AI next to it and be like, oh, it's an AI centered dog walking company or something random, right? Um, it, a lot of it is just, there's just kind of like this chain, right? That you need to sell it to investors. Investors need to sell it to the people that are providing the money. And we, as people kind of uh, group on buzzwords. So um, I, one of my, one of my favorite financial stories is around the 1987 crash, uh, stock market crash, and um, the Black Scholes Merton uh, options pricing model. Because so this was basically a model that um, that was used to price the price of options, uh, like an option to buy a stock at a future date, essentially. And it fit the UK market perfectly because they don't have early expiration of these. So you have to, it's kind of like a time horizon. So you have to own it for the time horizon. And um, at that point, you know, it's all kind of locked in into a mathematical equation. Um, here in the US, we didn't have that. So you could, uh, you could basically exercise the option early. So Black and Scholes created this option pricing model and uh, they started building basically these calculators and selling them onto the options exchanges in Chicago to the traders. So the traders started using these calculators to trade options on it, even though it didn't follow it like it did in the UK. Um, and there was a lot of different other things uh, in there. Um, it, the market started to mimic the calculator, right? To pretend like that was actually the case until it broke and everything went to crap, right? So like, I kind of feel um, as humans, we have the tendency to maybe not take the middle way, but to swing between things. And I think that's why we, you know, maybe politics is sometimes a good example of you vote everybody in four years or this four years and the next two or four years you vote everybody from the other party in. there's just these total swings right and uh and where we go and um you know it's 
like one of the things that I find really interesting is listening intently to how language mm-hmm. trickles through society right? and how people use maybe buzzwords, um, especially in business, um, because there will be, yeah, it's, it's just, it's interesting to see words that are more used in like Harvard Business Journal or something like that be uh, more frequently come about um, being used in your clients, how they talk about their businesses and stuff. So I, I think most of us think that we're generally not susceptible to marketing <laughs> right? when, when we are totally. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I even think about like, I mean, that, that would be an interesting thing you're definitely gonna have to send me your thesis and maybe you should make it available for anybody else because uh-huh. um, uh, i'd like to see the the, the fact of irrational hurt hurting behavior with the fear of missing out which i know that's part of your thesis mixed with the pendulum swings of the extremes i, I could definitely see some um, correlation and possibly um some uh, you know if this then that kind of stuff going on um, I completely agree about the language and that's a whole other, I mean, goodness, um, the trends that you're seeing and how culture ultimately, you know, culture affects us, whether it's marketing or not. I mean, because we respond to what's going on. Yeah. So, um, you know, two months ago, if someone said something about the squid games, no one cares because even though it had been out for a year <laughs> overseas, no one in the United States really paid attention to it. And all of a sudden now it's the most popular Halloween costume. It's the thing that people are talking about. Even if you don't know about the squid games, you kind of at least know about the squid games. Yeah. Um, so, and I, and I think sometimes we forget the markets, like you're talking about the financial market and, and certain buzzwords, certain kind of things that are infiltrating and slowly uh, recalibrating how we view things, how the perspective we look at it, but every world that we participate in. So if you're in a faith community, um, your specific business, you know, whoever's listening to this, if you're, whatever you're doing, there's a whole world of vernacular and words that get used to describe what you do. Um, even in your family, you know, your, whoever lives with you at home or if you're by yourself, your internet community, you know, whatever, there's certain ways that we're getting infiltrated slowly sometimes it's just a joke and um i think was it mean girls or something like that's so oh i can't remember the thing but there's like a phrase like that's so um quitch or something i don't know i'm horrible at quotes and then all of a sudden it's like oh yeah yeah fetch fetch (laughs) and um then it's like okay well that's not a thing and it's like yeah it is it is and then it starts getting used and then it's like no one ever hears about it again um, I asked my grandmother a long time ago, I said, you know, what were the words that you guys used to identify something that was really amazing or exciting? Like we use cool. Um, it was like, Oh, that's awesome. And she said, uh, well, we said, well, that's really, that's really neato. Um, or okie dokie, you know, um, stuff like that. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, you know, 80 years from now of what we use to describe <laughs> the same kinds of things. Um, but no, I, I love that. I love the fact that our language means, I mean, how we, how things go that it does change the environment. Um, uh, and, and you're talking about the financial of what's getting changed. So I know like some terms, these might even be outdated, but black swan and unicorn, 
means yeah. something completely different in the fantasy world that I'm more likely to participate in than they do in the finance world, which you actively participate in. Because yeah. <laughs> um, when I heard Black Swan, I'm like, oh, yeah, I saw that movie of Natalie Portman. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> um, and I know that's kind of going a little bit off topic, but where um, – so you, you are in energy, you're in finance, you do all these kind of really, I would say grandiose things to me. They're like these, these are the pinnacles of success based on, uh, the worlds that I grew up in of like to be an ex- a successful American, you know, you, you climb the towers and you become an important executive type person, huh? executive Matt Jensen. That's what maybe your nickname is. That's funny. How do you you talked about running a, a marina and, and doing some other stuff in the past. How do you kind of decide what you're going to do next? Like, um, do you kind of have some kind of visualization process that guides you and then you set goals to get there? Or you're just like, you know what, I'm going <laughs> to, I want to be a clown. And then you start just clowning uh-huh. around until um, all of a sudden they go like, Hey, it's, it's Matt bow or something like that. That's funny. Well, I, maybe I'll, I'll, talk a little bit about my back, background a little bit more then. And uh, so I, I grew up, like I, I think I said earlier, in a, a family business. And um, that was, so we eventually developed two marinas and had a, uh, like a wood boat yard um, for high-end restorations. And that's not necessarily a cheap thing to do um, is wooden boats. So I had a lot of exposure to like, I guess, financiers, like venture capitalists, uh, private equity people, um, uh, tech executives, like being in Seattle and, and I, you know, oh, go ahead. I know. I'm sorry. It's just, you even saying this now, I mean, we've had, I don't even know how many conversations we've had about your past in this. And I never once would have thought a Marina would have exposure to most of those types of people. Um, well, it's, because what's it's in my head of a marina? Funny, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it makes perfect sense. But when I think of a marina, I'm like, oh yeah, these are these are just some people that go out to the lake at night, or they go out to the ocean um, yeah. on their holiday or whatever. Uh, but it makes perfect sense. It's just like, oh my goodness, of course, no wonder you're who you are. Sorry, go huh. ahead, continue, continue. So, uh, and then also from a transportation side, like the tugboat in- industry. Um, so I had I had that perspective I, I was always like a really curious curious person so um and it, it was really cool like you know just wanting to talk about things but not trying to get something out of people um people were pretty open to tell me about what they did and um from so you know i was basically working in heavy industry but also around finance and stuff like that at, at a young age um, and then building all these kind of new technologies um, with the team to kind of get our operations essentially off grid. Um, so, you know, we could limit our effect on the environment and really kind of be good stewards of the community. Um, that was a really great experience. So um, in the, when I was a teenager, I started doing basically a lot of, if not most, pretty much most of the legal work, um, like the regulatory stuff for all these, all these things um, from ongoing compliance and 
also the development of new stuff. So that was just a whole figure it out process. And I got my hands involved in pretty much a lot of what I do now, which is everything from the financing to the, um, the energy portion, um, water treatment and management, um, heavy industry, moving big vehicles around. Um, and I spent a lot of time with business owners and these people that were basically at the top of their game, like figuring out what they, what they did, how they did it. So, um, you know, um, but I also had some really, you know, I, I probably, there's probably very few people, if not at all, that had the exposure and kind of the childhood that I had, you know, there was a lot of expected uh, of me too, but I really had a lot of, I think, good candor with um, older individuals um, that were, you know, 50, 60 year old professionals and got a really great um, insight to stuff. Um, my, one of my, I'd say the most important mentors of, of my life was one of my friend's dad and he was a, a proxy solicitor for mining companies. And that's basically someone that goes out and gets, um, gets a bunch of different groups of shareholders together to um, make decisions as a shareholder group for companies, whether that's electing people or making um, changes in the company, going out and buying um, and improving mergers and stuff. But, um, we, I used to spend a lot of time with him just going over the house, talking about geopolitics, uh, finance. And every single time I'd go over there, he would have like a stack of articles that he thought I would think are, would be interested in reading and a list of books that he thought would be interested in. And I was always, um, I was always one of those kids that if I thought something was interesting and wanted to learn more about it, I would just look up their name or phone number and cold call people and, you know, or, or find out someone that was a mutual, kind of a mutual interest um, and uh, kind of go out there. So, so what you're saying is the one thing that makes you more unique than about everybody else in the world is you had no problem cold calling calling somebody as a teenager. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. It was just like I've I've had a really great life, and um, I'm really interested in a lot of stuff. So I just you know kind of this was all like I guess pre YouTube where you could go on and find a, a specific sort of response on a certain topic or social media, but it's. It just, you know, people like to talk about what they're passionate about. And um, what I do now is what I've been doing for basically 20 plus years um, is uh, kind of a lot of the same things. You know, um, I, I was intimately involved in the legal process as like a teenager. I was uh, talking with government regulatory people um, and heads of regulatory agencies as a teenager, um, interacting with politicians and stuff like that. And it's just, you know, you can, I think sometimes people are afraid about things without, you know, realizing that other people go through the same stuff. 
So I think when you have that perspective, it kind of, you know, it's kind of go back to that hurting behavior thing. Like I don't mind standing on my own. And um, so it's, and I, you know, you kind of have to get out there a little bit to have mentors and your cer certain respects. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I've, uh, I've had a lot of great mentors um, that would bring me to things, whether that be like CFA, chartered financial analyst events, like uh, investor groups, networking. And I'm pretty used to being the youngest person in a room. Um, that's kind of, yeah. So, you know, it's kind of, uh, there's a lot of people that have been successful and whether it be their industry or life or something like that, they really have a, um, I think maybe a, a sense of being very grateful for what they received and also a feeling of responsibility to kind of pass that on. So um, I've found, and like I'm, you know, I'm still under 40, so um, I've got a long way to go, but, uh, but I've always found that you know, kind of treating things as like a community and trying to support other people is an important thing. Um, believing in other people because, you know, I was there once and the people that taught me were there too. Um, so I've, I've done a lot of stuff and it um, being, being in the regulatory uh, legal, like, if I have any suggestion to anybody that's kind of young growing up um, is to understand the law, um, how it works, kind of the process around that, because it really gives you an insight to, you know, it's kind of insight to the future. And right. if you're working in like heavy industry or energy or finance, stuff like that, you can pretty much, it's almost like having a crystal ball a lot of the times. Um, because you can follow, there's a trail for everything. Um, you can figure stuff out. And then, um, you know, if you don't understand something, go find an expert and ask some questions. So, yeah. It's, it's amazing just that last piece of advice you give, find an expert and ask them questions. That That's in cold calling. I mean, the that seems to be the most anti-hurting behavior because we... I don't know if we were trained this way. Um, like if this was something that was in the school system or if it's just the way the cultural norms have been passed on, but it's one of the hardest things or most people I know, they hate to call somebody on the phone, even if they're at work. It's like, it's, well, it's easier if I'm calling from work because at least I know I'm doing it for my job, not for me. Um, and that's when we're talking about like even calling friends, we're not even just talking about like calling strangers and stuff. But then to add that extra level of, hey, we're going to call somebody for the purpose of them to support my business or to support something that I'm trying to do. What what is do you have any advice on maybe how to start building that, like start disciplining yourself to be able to start cold calling? And so that way um, it doesn't feel as awkward or as weird when you actually um, start um start doing that kind of thing of calling an expert and finding out their advice. Well, if you have something like understanding your value, I guess, like having something to offer. Um, I don't think people 
necessarily appreciate if you just call them up and they're like, explain this really simple thing to me, you know, because everybody's time is valuable and stuff. But um, yeah, I, I think there's a authentic way of doing anything and um, people don't like to be manipulated or taken advantage of. So it's kind of, you know, like with, with my business and stuff like that, I kind of know where I fit with people and I, I know where products fit with people and I can kind of explain that in a simple way or cause you don't, you know, you kind of have to carry your own weight. Right. Right. And, and there could be some of the most impactful conversations that I've ever had are the one or two minute things that kind of brought everything together. Right. So I was talking with um, a family friend uh, a couple months ago. And so I'll, I'll go into, I'll, maybe I'll tell you about some of the companies I work with now that I think are really cool. And, um, but I was talking to a family friend a couple months ago, we went over to their house for July 4th. And I was talking about this, you know, this mineral stuff, how it frustrates me that um, we just don't really kind of think about where stuff come from, comes from and how it all fits together and stuff. Um, but, and the potential negative effects for poor people in other countries. Um, and we got in this discussion and he's, he's been in the uranium uh, mining industry for 50 years. So he's kind of an old, old season guy that really kind of knows a lot. He's a very wise man, but he, he told me about these patents that he had filed um, uh, starting a couple of years ago, and is basically using um, technologies that typically modified technologies that are usually typically utilized in oil and gas to um, do this. It's, it's kind of uh, called sustainable mining while drilling. So he owns the patents for the United States, and that's essentially where. So the way the mining's typically done is you build it or uh, dig a giant hole in the ground or you build these kind of um, large scale uh, ventilation systems and a big old tunnel that goes down elevators and stuff like that this giant operation um, that you know usually takes uh, 10 to 20 years before you're actually mining because it's so intensive so he was he was thinking about um, how you could, you could utilize some of the stuff from other industries to essentially reduce both the environmental um, effects and safety effects, but also do it at depths much deeper that are possible um, where minerals are more concentrated than typical mining methods where it's just not feasible to do. Um, and we were just talking about the world, right? And trying to go into this experience and um, it's kind of turned into a situation where I'm helping them commercialize it. And that's something that, you know, um, I, I may be deviating a little bit, but where I've studied a lot of it over years and I kind of have 
garnered or like understood all the different perspectives on it and how the things work, how how things uh, move together. And I'm not really trying to approach it from an ideology, ideological perspective and um, or just take basically kind of buzzwords or buzz phrases as being like, well, this is the way it is, so I don't need to uh, inform myself on it. And it's turned into a situation where I've, I've getting the opportunity to help them commercialize it. So that's that's pretty cool because it's it's a um, it's a real it's something that could totally change the game, so to speak, and do something that's not good and make it good, you know, or at least make it substantially better. So, um, you know, that's just being open to the world. Yeah, I, I might have deviated from your original question a little bit. You want to repeat it real quick and then. Yeah, the question was ultimately, how do you build the, how do you discipline yourself to be willing to ultimately do something that goes against what you've been taught to do in this specific case of like making a cold call? Uh, but I would say just anything really. How do you, what do you have any advice on how to step out of your comfort zone? Yeah, it's, it's good. It's good to be open to other people and open to change. Um, um, so, you know, it's, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if there's a really simple answer, like through practice, maybe. Um, there's been like so many times where I think I said earlier about a short, impactful conversation, just, you know, every conversation that you have with someone's a new opportunity to learn something new and different um everybody sees like i think we talked before previously about uh you know my my thought that we kind of all live in a simulation um because you know we're all different people and we have this thing our brain that processes information for us we've got our different bodies and stuff that we kind of exist in and we have a tendency to think that everybody thinks the same or approaches things the same, but that's not true. Um, everybody's got different experience that they've leaned on or experiences, um, different traumas or good things um, that have happened in their past. Um, and it's, you, we have a tendency as humans to view everything through that lens. So, you know, generally being open to being changed or maybe uh, stepping outside the ego a little bit um, is helpful, you know? Um, like I think, think probably over the next hundred years, probably the biggest opportunity for exploration is within ourselves rather than, you know, exploring under the sea or in space. It, it's, it's just like there's, you know, it's one thing that I spend a lot of time on is you'd say it's, some people might say it's spirituality or something like that, but just kind of seeing how and why I project myself in the world the way that I do, how I interact with people and um, how that all works is, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I, I think like individuality and kind of being autonomous in our decision-making is kind of the greatest gift that we have. And I think that, 
and you mentioned this a little bit earlier as well, and you, you kind of reiterated this now, you are who you are because of the circumstances and the events that happened in your life. Um, you said like, maybe not everybody's had a similar upbringing, but no matter what, you are everything you've done, everything that's been done to you specifically. So even though your brother who grew up in a very similar household, except being your brother, as opposed to you being his brother, um, yeah. you know, you guys have a different lives. You have different things that happen. And each person that's listening to this, you know, you are a compilation of all these things that you've done and happened to you. And even though I admire you, Matt, and I, there's certain things that I definitely, I use you as like a inspiration to try to be similar in certain aspects. Um, I'm still going to have all the things that make me, me. And that's what we don't need to Matt Jensen's as awesome as you are. Huh. We, we need each of us I to agree. be individual. And um, that's what, that's what adds to, making the world better, I think ultimately. And then, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, um, you know, yeah. to go back to that hurting behavior discussion, it's kind of like safety isn't necessarily a great thing. Sometimes we kind of, we kind of like tend to hurt ourselves uh, away from things that are perceived as dangerous. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people like correlate, you know, from maybe a dramatic level is cold calling someone equals that I, I die. Right. 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 And stuff like that. Um, it's, I always try to, uh, ask myself when I'm feeling weird emotions, like, why am I feeling this way? Like, why is there fear there and kind of explore it. And, you know, it's just, nothing's going to solve that feeling if you kind of ignore it. Yeah. And even though I don't necessarily do entertainment as my job, I just do it as a side hobby that everybody obviously appreciates all <laughs> the time. Um, never uh -huh. gets old with me. Uh, but I learned a long time ago that sometimes you just have to, you have to quit worrying about being embarrassed. Like if, if, if embarrassment is the reason why you don't want to do something, worry about that after you do whatever the thing is, um, just jump into it because I know a lot of people get nervous giving speeches or going on stage or, um, doing something. And generally I just kind of go in there a little bit more reckless than that. I'm like, huh. I'm just going to give this thing. Um, afterward, I'm not be very self-conscious like, Hey, did I do okay? It was okay. But that's, I've already at least done the product and then I can worry about the after effects. Um, and, uh, it's still not the most healthy, but it's a lot healthier for me than not even going up on stage or not giving that speech or not um, recording that podcast episode. You know, yeah. it's, um, I can worry, I, I still need to work on parts of myself, but at least now something's going out there. And a guy that we both have a lot of respect for, Seth Godin, you know, he talks about um, most important thing is put out a product that's worth putting out and then you can find ways to fine tune it after you've put it out there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, uh, so my, my boss, uh, at my first boss at Baker Hughes, he like, I think it was like the first or second day. It was basically orientation. He was like, he was like, if you can't figure something out, try to figure it out. If you still can't figure it out, Google it. And if you can't figure out it still, then ask me. And it was just kind of like this thing, like, I, I thought it was great. Like I knew at that moment that I was going to love, love working for him because uh, he was just really, I'm like, Oh, this guy's and I are aligned. Like you don't really know what it's going to feel like until you do it. 
and a lot of people just stop themselves from even trying but you miss you miss out on so much and there's you know um there's been a lot of experiences over my life that i've just been kind of i've been maybe forced especially earlier forced in a position where i had to do something and kind of had like this little imposter syndrome so to speak because you know oftentimes i was the youngest person involved but it just is everything kind of takes practice and if you've got a support system around you like people i think everybody's got a support system around them essentially because even if you don't know anybody there's mentors that you can get go out and get today like in books or uh like youtube videos or stuff like that to kind of help you along and figure it out right. or there's people that you can um you can call yeah. on but the practice is uh, go back to seth again and i think he had a new book called the practice mm -hmm. but i think that the practice is the most important thing because it helps build up your re resiliency and you don't really um you don't really learn until you do things yeah. and and the more that you learn uh doing things the more you or you have the opportunity to pull in other parts of your experience to make that better yeah and, and i would say if if you're listening to this episode at this point um, you're not necessarily going to be in a situation where you don't have access to youtube or the library or podcast obviously <laughs> yeah you know uh, um an interesting thing happened actually last night and, and i'm only going to mention this because for the longest time this is one of my biggest setbacks why i didn't move forward with things is i was always worried about the person who is too poor that wouldn't have access to some of the things that i was able to have access to and i wanted to always look at the least of these as um somebody who um if they don't have access then no one should have access it was a weird mentality but it was one i carried for a long time and last night um while we were doing our improv show um i was handing out like brochures to try to get people to come in and a guy's like well i don't have enough money and i was like well here's a coupon you can use um, in the future and he's like well i'm homeless and i've been homeless for eight years <laughs> and i'm like uh, okay um I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and no matter what was said by me or anybody else, he kept on adding on on why he couldn't. And I'm not, and I'm not picking on homeless as a whole and I'm not picking on him specifically, but I definitely came from a mentality very similar to that, that I kept on giving so many excuses why I couldn't. And honestly, we would have probably given him a show for free if he really wanted to come in, but he wanted more to tell us how horrible his life was. And I'm not trying to, again, I'm not saying a blanket statement gets all homeless people or anything like that. Um, and it's so easy to think like, well, I don't have enough time or I don't have enough thing. And um, sometimes it takes reorganization. We've been trying to do this interview for a few months, <laughs> you know, um, and legitimately I didn't have time, not because there wasn't time available, but because of the commitments I'd already committed to, I had to rearrange those and some opportunities had to come up. So in, in your schedule also i mean i was just looking at my schedule and things come up but we we eventually this is going to get put out you know before the next decade or two huh. um, <laughs> um 
But if you're listening to this episode, you do have access to the free emails from Seth Godin that we both read. Um, we do, you do have access to lots of podcasts, YouTube videos, library books that again are free that can definitely enhance your stuff. And by making some of the changes that are in those opportunities, you will, you should be able to find a way to save money or increase your income enough that you can start paying for some of the things that go a little bit more in depth and everything. Um, yeah, there's kind of that quote. It's like those that say they can and they can't are both right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now we have at this point, and this might get edited, but this is now officially the longest interview that will probably get posted at this point. Um, is there anything else specifically you would like to address before um, we cut this specific interview short? We'll probably have to do another interview anyway, but, um, but is there anything in this specific interview that you would like to talk about before we um, move on to the closing? Uh, let's see. What, what would be interesting? Do you want, want me to talk a little bit about trends that I see happening over the next yeah, that'd, year? Yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, so Matt, what are some of the trends that you see could be happening over the next year or so? There's a, a lot of stuff going on right now that I think is really interesting. And we're kind of almost going through, um, like I we've talked a lot about how I think the world kind of moves in cycles. Like a lot of people think, you know, in this linear way that everything happens is going to be new. But um, I think what we're seeing is a lot of a lot of cyclical effects that where it's history that's kind of represented itself. Um, and you know, we talked, uh, I think, earlier about uh, a lot of the debate that's happening now is very similar to the debate that was happening in the 30s and 40s around the FDR time, um, you know, everything from uh, demonizing billionaires and um, the whole geopolitical events going on. Uh, but it's, it's just very interesting to see how it's just kind of like different, different people and different entities, but the same stuff happening. Um, I, COVID, COVID's been a very interesting time, I think, to really see where society has been breaking and you know there's a lot of um there's a lot of trends with that like recently we're we're dealing with a supply chain issue and you know um that's something that's decades in the making but there's a lot of yeah it's it's just it's a it's a weird time so um i <laughs> I really feel that the next couple of years are going to be very chaotic um, and probably until 2025 at the earliest, um, maybe longer. Um, it, it looks like. Was that? I, I think there was a lot of factors into it. Um, part of it is uh, demographics, um, kind of a shift in ideologies and stuff between generations. Part of it's geo, geopolitical concerns. Like it's, um, I, you know, it's surprising to say, but I think the current administration has been much more uh, aggressive towards China with their words than um, Trump was. And, um, but it looks like we might potentially be in a military conflict with China and Russia in 
you know, by the end of the decade, um, it's, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of weird stuff too, because it's, how do you go to war with someone that you're entirely dependent on too, for energy and other things? So I, I really, like we talked a lot about energy earlier. I think energy in itself, energy and minerals are gonna be um, some of the biggest factors um, in geopolitics and um, political stability over the next couple of years. Um, there's also, you know, in, in the US, we have some potential things that might pop up in the next decade, but that aren't really talked about is like we have, it's been increasingly more difficult uh, financial wise to raise families in the US. It's very expensive and we have a declining birth rate. So that's, I think, potentially one of the biggest risks that we have for domestic stability on top of all this stuff, on top of all the uh, political polarization and everything, because, you know, uh, like social security needs more people paying into it to pay the people that are retiring. And um, if it wasn't the government, they would call it kind of a Ponzi scheme in a way, right? So it kind of has the same behaviors, um, but there, there's just so much stuff going on and the interconnectedness of the world is um, quite an in interesting thing to really be looking at now is how, how does finance, energy, consumption, how does that all fit together? Um, I think water is gonna be an increasing topic too um, for the next couple of years. So work with a really cool um, water company. They're pretty badass, but um, yeah, it's, there's gonna be a lot of change too. And I think there's also gonna be a lot of uh, capital destruction um, but when you I, say I, capital dis destruction, you mean like financial capital? Yeah, it's okay. just just you know January yeah. sixth still is a little fresh. So oh yeah, <laughs> I didn't think about that. Um, but yeah, it's it's just I feel like a lot of people are trying to get in to the next big thing, and when you have stuff kind of manically going all over the place like that, it creates a lot of interesting scenarios to kind of investigate, um, you know, and it's, you know, financial markets are interesting. You have uh, one, of, one of the good examples that I think you have recently is there's a company, electric car maker called Rivion that filed to go public and at a 70 billion valuation. And they were invested in and part, part, partly owned by Ford who at the time was had like a valuation of about 55 billion or Rivian hadn't commercially produced a car and Ford is one of the biggest car producers in the world. So there's a lot of delocation from fundamentals all over the world right now. Um, and that's causing issues. And then also uh, globalization, I think is, is kind of under, threat in a way too, because, you know, when you have this kind of like we talked about the energy grid too, can almost kind of explain that as an energy grid in itself. But when you have to move things all over the world um, to get them to fit together, just so you can finish a product, that's kind of uh, 
interesting deal. So like we've had, so Taiwan and China kind of dyna, uh, dominate the semiconductor market. Um, China wants to uh, reintegrate Taiwan, uh, something that they're very um, adamant about. So th there's kind of like things like that too. Like how does the West, how does the West respond to that? Do they, you know, it seems like we want to go to war with them over that, but <laughs> often, you know, oftentimes it kind of seems like certain people don't even care what you know, countries like Taiwan want from their right. people. So, right. um, but it's, COVID's been interesting because everything readjusted and kind of broke down and there's just so much, there's so much to talk about. So, and there's so much coming down too, but I, you know, I, I do think that we'll have a lot of um, crises over the next year, whether that's, um, actual crises or crises that are kind of made out to be more than they are and in an interconnected world that we live in these days all of those have the uh, potential to lead to real world events whether that be wars or um, you know um, decisions that companies make that aren't in their best interest or people make that aren't in their best interest so you know I always feel that it has to get worse before it gets better. And uh, long-term, I've really got a lot of hope in the future, but I do think that a lot of um, things that we generally as people see as truths are gonna break down over the next couple of years. And hopefully um, within that, there will be kind of a uh, reintegration of a shared commitment for each other. So you don't think we've gotten to the worst part yet? Uh, definitely not. Well, thanks for that inspiration. <laughs> well, I mean, worse is a relative term, but, you know, we're generally in a very safe part or like a safe period. Um, and it's, you know, life has never been better than it is right now, but it also does seem like a lot of people are very pissed off. Yeah. So, you know, I... Yeah, from a fundamental sense, um, it's you know, it's just a it's a weird time. Yeah, I, it's I, a it's. Um, I think and we we said this near the beginning of all this. Um, we're in a time where people are more sensitive to things they perceive as um, unjust or not right, and we forget all the things that got us to this position. And, um, and I, I think sometimes our, our ability to remember is lax and that's what causes more problems than anything else. Um, and I think most people across the world would love to have change, like the, everything to be just and everything to be right. Um, but we don't all agree on what that justice and that righteousness, huh. you know, kind of looks like. So, um, so it's remembering what we've gone through to get where we are. But Matt, I am so thankful that we finally got this interview recorded. I think this is the right interview. Um, oh. It'll be going up soon. Um, thank you so much for being my guest today uh, for this episode. For sure. Thanks for having me, Mike. Hot dog. Hot dog. Hot dog. Hot dog. Hot dog. Hot dog.
Hey listeners, it's Jarvix again with my hot dog song of the week. This episode, I've got an instrumental diversion for you from a gentleman and a scholar named Santiago Ramones. Once upon a time, I thought Santiago Ramones was some kind of weird band name, possibly inspired by the Ramones, since they're spelled the same, and I'm not too proud to admit that I pronounced his name Santiago Ramones for a while before I knew better. It's not a totally unfounded conclusion. After all, the first time I heard a Santiago Ramones live set, it was a full rock band, and it wasn't unheard of for new indie bands to be weirdly named after public figures. I'd heard of music monikers like Chet Faker, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Jr., and Com Trues, for example. However, the more one comes to know Santiago Ramones, the more one comes to recognize that there is almost never any irony in how he presents his work. Everything he touches is very truly an extension of his core being. I came to know of Santiago's more rock-influenced music early on while he was an ACM at UCO undergrad, and later on I found Bit Depth, which I contend is one of the most prolific podcasts in Oklahoma City, with over 270 episodes and counting. When I first started listening, seeing all of the music artists that he had as guests, I thought it was a music podcast, but it's really much deeper than that. Its interview format takes a more philosophical spin, delving into all of the big questions that persist through the ages. Then I began to pick up more on Santiago's compositional work, which avidly delves into electronics and experimentalism. He's been a big part of this delightfully weird recurring concert series at the UCO Jazz Lab called Electric Pizza, which would showcase experimental electroacoustic performances from UCO students and free pizza was indeed provided. That leads us to a new EP by Santiago Ramones called Sound Bites, and that's Bites spelled with a Y, which released in May of 2021. It's a collection of odds and ends from excursions like the electric pizza shows, the oldest of which is a formative track called Mirage, which is my song pick this week. If this track seems a bit sparse, you wouldn't be wrong, and it's actually a reflection of a sparse setup with just a basic MIDI pad controller and a laptop, breaking from Santiago's familiarity with a keyboard interface. It's one of those sparks of resourcefulness where one finds new ways to create from limitation. That sort of thing speaks to me, as you might have guessed by some of my past music, including the hot dog song that Mike plays to intro my segment for Nobody's a Nobody. I recorded that back in 2014 on Fruity Loops with a $10 USB mic and a ukulele that I pitch shifted. But enough about me, let's relax with some electronic mood music, shall we? From the new EP, Sound Bites, here is Mirage by Santiago Ramones.
Thank you so much to Santiago Ramones for Mirage. It was a beautiful song. Thank you, Jarvix, for recommending that. And please support Jarvix if you haven't already. He is an amazing person. MakeOklahomaWeirder.com. Uh, check out oneokc.org and support and fight uh, illiteracy in Oklahoma. Uh, OKC Improv, again, I've got a show coming up uh, this Sunday, November 14th, uh, 5 p.m., 7 p.m. It'll be a lot of fun. You can see me look like really stupid in person instead of just here on the thing. Um, and also uh, Up Down Bar, if you're in the Plaza District and you're looking to have a great time, please support Up Down. Um, I might feel like I've abandoned you, but remember that you are important, you are special, and nobody is a nobody. And that means you. Until next time.